All right, Corkies, here we go again. You have another special guest up for you today. Today we have Phyllis Lovis, who is a psychotherapist. Right. Yes. Something a little different for you today. And she actually um, specializes in sexual abuse treatment. So she co-directed sexual abuse treatment program back in the day and um, also has her private practice. So she is here to talk all things. We're going to get all in her business. She's written several books, right? And so we're going to get down to the nitty gritty of who Phyllis is. And we are super excited. The season all about guest we're keeping this thing rolling. And so we are here to talk to her today. Yes. Thanks. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. It's just a delight and an honor to be here with the two of you. Thank you. So to get down into it, right? Um, what led to you obtaining your master's degree in, in psychology and counseling and then ultimately become the psychotherapist that you are today? And if you don't mind adding on, I know this is going to be a long kind of maybe question, but mm -hmm. specifically what a psychotherapist is, because I don't think we've ever had um, a psychotherapist on. I, I, I don't know what today, I, I just, I'm feeling this word today, psychotherapist. <laughs> okay. okay. Well, um, maybe I'll just start with that really quickly. I, I don't know like a dictionary definition, but there's kind of several degrees in psychology. The most common ones are psychotherapist, psychologist, and psychiatrist. Mm -hmm. And um, I, I was trained, I got a master's in um, psychology and counseling, which has trained me to be a psychotherapist. And basically what a psychotherapist does is just really work with people with their issues. It's not, we don't prescribe medication. Um, we don't do formal psych evals. We don't do that kind of thing. We really work with children, families, couples, individuals, um, whoever were trained or specialized in treating, and some people treat every, you know, a whole variety. And I've worked with most of those populations over time. But we really do like the nitty gritty of like what's bothering you, <clears throat> what are where did that come from, you know, what are some of your formative experiences that led you to the place where you're, you know, usually people come to therapy when they're stuck with something, they're stuck in relationship, or they're stuck in their creativity, or um, their business, you know, there's something's not working in their life, or they're just, you know, it may not be as specific as that. It may be more like depression or anxiety, um, or just, you know, a lot of emotional pain that they have not been able to resolve from a variety of reasons. So we kind of dig in, you know, and get to the source and work with some of the formative experiences that led a person to where they are today. And um, I can't really speak to what a psychologist or a psychiatrist does because I'm not them, but I think they do a lot more testing, a lot more prescribing kind of things. And and maybe some of them also treat as well. Um, I think I think some people, you know, mix both. But for me, I don't prescribe any medication or, you know, write evaluations, that kind of thing. So that's that's what I do, and that's what I've done for over thirty years with you know a whole variety of people. Got it. And then to answer your other question, what led me to um, when my when my children were really little, 
I wanted to go back to school. I had already had a, a bachelor's in liberal arts and I wanted to go back to school and I was debating between becoming a teacher or becoming a therapist. And I decided on becoming a therapist because I had gone to therapy myself um, just prior to that. And, you know, that was in the the 1980s when I went to therapy. And, you know, when I grew up, therapy was not a thing people did or even I didn't even know about it. So it was more new in my life at that time. And making the connection between my own upbringing and the things that had conditioned and formed my life in some ways that were not so great, um, making that connection to like, I wasn't just a flawed person. I There was a reason why I was up against some of the things that I was up against, um, that psychology was really, and therapy were really able to help me begin to understand. And I thought, whoa, this is amazing. This is what I wanna do. Mm-hmm. That's really nice. Thank you. Yeah, it's been quite a journey. <laughs> and I was a ther- I was a client myself for many, many years in different ways. I find that many therapists start their journey like that. They are a client first and then they become inspired to become a therapist themselves or um, something like that. But that's definitely what I've heard from many therapists. Yeah, and that's definitely true for me. Um, you know, it was... It was just illuminating. Uh, the first book I read, um, you know, I, I went to therapy and I went and found a book on psychology and, you know, sort of a layman's kind of book on psychology. And and it outlined the 10 most formative experiences in a person's life. And I don't actually remember all of what they were, but it was like, oh, you know, it's like light bulb. And I think some of that we know today more, you know, as general knowledge, but it was new for me. Thank you for sharing. So when you co-directed your sexual abuse treatment program, were you passionate about this at the time or were you kind of just like, did you kind of just stumble upon it or were you kind of searching for this? You know, well, um, we had to do an internship when I was doing my master's program. And um, that was an internship that was actually available to me um, was working in a sexual abuse treatment program in Santa Fe, which is where I lived at the time. And I was just beginning to remember abuse in my own childhood. And so I don't know that I was passionate, but I was drawn. I was really drawn. And I felt like it was so fortuitous that that's where I ended up because as my own individual work unfolded, that became something very deep for me to heal. And, um, and my experience working, it was a, it was a wonderful program. It was called Parents United. I don't know if it still exists, but it, it had a great model. I thought it was all group therapy and it was, um, there were groups for different ages of children who had been molested. There were groups for adults who had been molested as children. And there were groups for, parents, both offending parents who were court ordered into therapy and the non what, what's called the non-offending parent, which was usually the mother, often the mother, you know, um, who either did or did not know about the abuse. And so we, we re- I really got like amazing training in the whole family structure 
of what happens around abuse that can be applied, you know, not just to sexual abuse, but to really any abuse or any major dysfunction, family dysfunction. Mm -hmm. So it was a really great hands-on experience for me in that way. So between my own experience of my own healing and working intensively with abuse and neglect um, in that setting, I felt like I was developing a really strong foundation for how to work with some of the deepest traumas that people have come to me with over the years. And I always say this, that it's amazing how many people have had trauma, sexual abuse, physical abuse, massive family dysfunction from addiction, um, neglect, abandonment in their childhoods. It's, it's everyday people. Mm -hmm. It's not the anomaly which is sad. For sure. Yeah. Did you feel any um, resistance to going into a program like that and working? Like, mm, I don't want to work with that population because of your experience? You know, I didn't. I oh. never felt that way. I never felt that way. I felt very at home. I felt very related. I felt um, deep empathy and compassion, which I think is a part of good therapy. I didn't feel that. That is amazing because I know I hear a lot of counselors um, say like, mm -mm, I don't work that population because I guess they feel so familiar with it or it yeah. triggers them in a way. Um, and so they don't want to, you know, deal with whatever that that struggle or those symptoms um, are. So that's great that you, you know, um, were able to work with that population. And then also because of, you know, it being such uh, something that hit home for you. Definitely. Um, definitely. Um, and I have another question related to that. Sure. Um, and you kind of touched on it already with it being something that so many people deal with. Um, I was curious to know when, I guess, how, what was the program's approach to when someone did come forward and speak out against or about their experience and they weren't always believed or you know yeah i mean i think that was one of the big big challenges i think it's one of the big challenges no matter what aspect of abuse or violence um or neglect you work with because um there are a lot of people who don't want to own up to what happened or they feel so guilty that they're ashamed and they don't want to talk about it um so that that definitely was a part of the work. And I never worked in the offender group. So that part, the, there were people that were more trained to work with people who had actually offended children than I, I wasn't trained in that. But I did a lot of work in what was called the non-offending parent group. And that that was that's incredible work. I think it's it's really, really needed. Um, and so I'll say it was mostly mothers that that doesn't mean that every non-offending parent is a woman, but that's generally what we saw in our program. And there were some mothers who believed their kids and reported it right away when they when they found out. And there were other mothers who refused to believe their kids um, or really struggled to believe their kids because for a variety of reasons that are understandable. Um, they didn't want to lose their partner, their marriage. They were often financially dependent on that person for their survival. And so they felt caught between the welfare of their child and their survival. Um, 
some mothers felt, I mean, there's a whole range of what people feel. That's all human. Some mothers felt really threatened by their daughter, seeing their daughter as a rival for their partner. Um, and so there were a lot of reasons why some non-offending parents went into denial about it. And we addressed that head on, you know, not with blame, not with shame. And that's a big thing. You know, I think that the best therapy does not blame and shame people. It really seeks to understand where they're coming from and what wound they had. And I will mention this too, because we also found this, that I don't have a statistic here, but I would say that the majority of non-offending mothers were also sexually abused and never got any help. So there's a whole backlog of their own repression that goes along um, and fear and pain that, you know, you have to be in a really safe place to open up. And so we tried to make that a safe place um, to the very best of our ability. And I have to say, I worked with wonderful people and I always had a co-therapist. We always did the groups in pairs. So, um, but yeah, that's the challenge. And that's the challenge in our society. You know, if we segue out just for real quickly to the abuses that are happening in our society, there are people for a variety of reasons, many of which are economic, you know, um, that don't want to acknowledge the abuses that are happening in our country um, or be responsible for the impact um, because they stand to lose power, they stand to lose money, they stand to lose prestige whatever that is. And, and I really try to go into a lot of that in my book. I mean, I go into a lot of different aspects of this because, and I'll come right back to your questions, but I just want to segue out to say the reason why I wrote the book the way that I did, um, and I called it America and Therapy, um, is because what I see happening in our country on so many levels is what happens in abusive families with the same effects on people that abusive families have on their members. And I believe that psychology and the best psychotherapy hold some answers that we could really use to heal our country, the violence, the divisiveness, the hostility, the discrimination, um, and the greed, if we were willing to be in therapy as a country. And I talk about what that is. You have to be willing. <laughs> I am curious, how long did your groups run for? Like were was it were they like open groups or people could kind of like hop in, hop out if they needed to, or what was like the um setup for these groups? I it's it's a long time ago, but I believe they ran in eight week cycles. And I think people could come back, you know, and do another cycle. But they they had sort of a beginning and an end. And I think that I believe, and again, it was a long time ago, but I believe it started with a group and that it it wasn't drop in and drop out. And then the, if somebody was new, they came into the next cycle, I believe. I'm not positive, but we definitely had a structure. It wasn't just come if you wish. And most of our clients came through, were referred through social services. Mm -hmm. So some of them had court orders to be there and some of them, some of them didn't, but they really wanted to have help for themselves and their children. I mean, it's, it's very painful. It's very painful for everyone, you know, sort of, I want to say, bless the hearts of all the non-offending moms that we had, because it was not easy to face that your husband or your father or your brother or your uncle molested your child. Yeah. So it's painful for everyone. 
Well, thank you for sharing about that. That's very interesting. Um, you mentioned uh, your book, um, and we absolutely love the messaging of hope and healing. Um, and you said that, you know, we as a country need to <laughs> get into some therapies and counseling. How long do you feel like it would take to help to restore us to uh, a safe place? You know, I read that in your questions and I don't have an answer. What I would say is this, though, that what brings people to therapy and what keeps people in therapy is the level of their distress. People, most people, there are a few people that come and say, I have a great relationship, but I'd like it to be better. That's not your average client. Your average client is coming because they're really in pain. Something really isn't working. And my hope for our country is that with all the people speaking out, you know, and I'm one small voice, but with all the people speaking out about the pain in our country and the escalation of mass murder and, you know, horrible discrimination and the 1% and people suffering from poverty and not having access to adequate health care and education, and we could go on and on, that the pain would be great enough that we would say we need help as a nation. I don't see that happening yet. I, I don't see us at that tipping point. And one of the reasons why I'm writing this book is that I really want to take all of what I've learned about abuse and its effects on people, one of the effects of which is to silence people. Um, my hope is to bring this into, you know, make my contribution to making this part of a national conversation and to bringing the gifts that I've learned as a psychotherapist to the layman, because we're not taught about psychology. And I think it needs to be in the public schools. I think it needs to be a subject in high school, family dynamics, um, violence, you know, teaching about violence, teaching about nonviolent um, conflict resolution. And there are pockets of people doing this, but it's not yet a national referendum if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. So the answer is when we feel enough pain, maybe we'll do it. <laughs> you know? yeah, I think that's a perfect answer. I love that you, uh, you mentioned high school because earlier you were talking about how you um, came to be, you know, in counseling and interested in it. And my first like kind of introduction to counseling was in high school. Um, oh, wow. I had an intro to counseling um, as an elective and I took it. Wow. Uh, and I, I only took it because the coach, the football coach was the teacher. Uh, so I knew it would be an easy A, but he <laughs> did a great job teaching it. And it was so interesting. Um, and so when I went to college and my original, um, the original thing that I wanted to go to college for was not offered, I chose that. Oh, um, the rest is history. Um, but yeah, so it was in my, my high school way back then. Now, of course it's not. Um, so I love that you mentioned that. Yeah. And I would love to see that. Go ahead. And we learn about, you know, triggers and red flags and family violence and stuff like that in college and grad school for us therapists, but regular people don't really learn that. So I think in high school, if that was introduced earlier on, kids would be able to say, okay, this is not normal. Or like, I shouldn't be responding like this, or like that shouldn't happen this way. Like they would be able to see things earlier and maybe even recognize like 
red flags or even green flags, you know, um, if they just had that education behind psychology at an earlier age, like you said. Absolutely. And along with that is what, you know, what I would hope would be some basic understanding of family dynamics, dysfunctional family dynamics and healthy family dynamics, because so many kids are coming out of dysfunctional families and that's just the milieu they live in. It's normal. And, um, and even though we do talk about abuse, you know, and kids are encouraged to report. Um, I think with actually with education, they might actually know better what's actually happening in their family and know what's happening to them and be more likely to get help and, and help. And, you know, this is a, a something that I feel really strongly about help needs to be help the family, not just look for somebody to prosecute, you know, yes, restrain somebody if they're really a danger. We, we, we want to be safe. We want our kids to be safe. But so many people are really candidates for help. So not to stigmatize a dysfunctional family, but offer the services that would help everybody heal. Mm -hmm. Most dysfunctional family parents came from dysfunction, you know? Yeah. Or place a Band-Aid on it, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You got to stop this cycle of like trauma and dysfunction and be able to pinpoint those things early on for sure. Yeah. And one of the things that I talk about a lot in my book, because I see it on an individual level and I see it happening in our country on a mass level is that, and I think a lot of people don't really know this, that in all the years that I have been in practice and, you know, I, I don't know what percentage of my clients came from abuse, but a big percentage. Um, the two most typical outcomes of abuse, if it's not stopped, and if a person doesn't get help, are either becoming helpless, learning to be helpless because you were overpowered. You learned that fighting back was not a good thing to do. You might get hurt worse, or there's a threat that the abuser will hurt somebody else in your family, um, or that you'll be abandoned or kicked out or whatever. So one big outcome is called learned helplessness. And this is written about in a lot of the literature. And the other one is identification with the aggressor. It's those people who decide I'm never going to be a victim again. And they become aggressive and they gravitate toward aggressive people and abusers and often become abusers. And this cycle is happening in our country. I think the more abuse comes down from the top at, at a government level of policy and practice and rhetoric and all of that, um, the more people feel either overwhelmed and powerless and more likely to be manipulated and controlled, or they become identified with the aggressor and that's their strong man and their hero. And they champion that person because it makes them feel powerful when in fact, all, all of us, who are abused feel powerless on some level. Um, and in our country, I think what we see today, and we definitely see this in abusive families, that people who tend to um, identify with the aggressor and support um, abusers are rewarded. And they often become given positions of power and authority. And this is really frightening for our country. This is really, really frightening. And everything I say about America really applies to things that are happening all over the world. But I talk about America because this is where I live and this is the country that I know. But this is a frightening escalation. 
Um, what would you suggest, right? Because right now we, America, like you said, has, has not hit that tipping point, right? And so what would you suggest someone do individually, maybe for themselves? Because, right, that's the one thing, one person we can control. That's um, right. Maybe to at least start the conversation within their immediate family. Yeah. So, I mean, there's many things. If you know that you have been hurt and you're afraid to talk about it, you're afraid to get help for the impact that it's had on you, or you're afraid to speak up about someone that you know is hurting other people, you know, I just encourage anyone to find a safe place, even if you call a hotline to begin with, and it's anonymous, but find a safe place to begin to talk about it. See if there's a way you can get yourself to safety so that you can talk about it safely. So that's one thing. Um, and then if you're someone who recognizes these signs of abuse in other, you know, people that you know, speak up, ask, you know, not like an interrogation, but are you okay? You know, so many times people, we see that somebody's not okay, but we're afraid to open the door or it's none of our business or whatever. Um, so that's another thing. And then, you know, educate ourselves. That's that's what my book is really designed to do. It's really designed to educate on a mass level, hopefully, because there's just so many people who don't know about the dynamics of abuse. They don't know. I didn't know. Personally, I did not know that the pain I had, the anxiety that I had, I had a lot of anxiety, a lot of fears, um, just a lot of repression. I didn't know that came from sexual abuse. I just thought there was something wrong with me. And I think there's millions of people out there who just think there's something wrong with them and they just try to hide, which is what I did. I tried to like act normal and be normal when I was just carrying around a massive amount of pain. And it wasn't until I linked it to, to abuse that I began to recover myself. So that's the other thing. And then the other, you know, another thing that I talk about is like, you know, we all have different spheres of influence. You have a beautiful sphere of influence. You can reach hundreds of people by having your podcast and talking about, you know, uncorking mental health <laughs> um, with a variety of people who have all different kinds of perspectives and experience. So you can educate and inform and enlighten a lot of people at once. And that's an incredible contribution. And what I say is whether you have a big sphere of influence or you, it's just your family and the people you work with and your friends, we can all have an influence. We can all have more compassion for each other. We can all become better listeners. We can all become less judgmental. And I like to tell this story of I like to tell a story with things because I think it just brings it home about how easy it is to have an impact. So um, my husband and I were having um, dinner with my daughter in a restaurant and the waitress was clearly, you know, not friendly. Let's just say she was not friendly and she sort of appeared maybe upset. Um, I don't think it had anything to do with us. I think she was having a bad day for some reason and we could have been annoyed. You know, we came to a restaurant, we're paying for a nice dinner and we're having a cranky waitress. But instead, my daughter just looked up at her and said, are you having a bad day? Mm -hmm. And she just melted. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't even think she told us what was going on, but she said yes. And 
somebody somebody cared is really all that mattered. Somebody cared. And she was just lovely for the rest of the evening. And that wasn't even the point. The point was that somebody cared. And I like to think she went home in a better mood. And if she had a husband and kids, she didn't go home and freak out because she had a bad night, but because she received a little bit of love somewhere. And we can all do that. I love it. I love it too. You know, I, I love it when I'm like checking out at a store and someone says, how are you today? You know, I love it. It, it makes a huge yeah. difference. Yes. It makes a huge <laughs> difference. And what if everybody in the world got that? Because I'm telling you, from my practice, I know that there are people who have never been told that they were loved. Yes. By anyone. By yes. anyone. Mm -hmm. Yes. Maybe no one's even asked them about their life. Phyllis, can you share a bit about your divine meditations that you have kind of created over the years and spoken about on your website as well? Yeah. Um, you know, I don't, and I don't think I'm alone in this, although I don't know how many people talk about it. Although, and I guess I would say maybe more people talk about this today than they used to, but in the process of my, um, my working on my childhood, I was keeping a journal and I, I have always been a writer. I wrote poetry in high school and I wrote some um, little children's books when I was younger. And I've always been, always gravitated toward writing and felt that writing was a connection that I could make to my, I'll call it my essential self. When I was writing, I felt like I could go really deep into some part of myself that I didn't necessarily access in any other way. So I kept a journal while I was doing some very intense work on, on what had happened to me in my childhood. And one day writing in my journal, I actually heard a divine voice talking to me and it started to tell me what my soul was doing here in all the experiences of Phyllis. And, and then it went on to, you know, share meditations and, um, a lot of, a lot of, um, just, I mean, really all kinds of very specific information about how our ego consciousness works and what our soul is trying to transform through the experiences of our personalities. And then I was given a lot of information about the chakras and how to meditate with the chakras. And so that's really where it all came from. I mean, I would honestly say it did not come from me. It came from some level of consciousness that I tapped into that was very explicit you know, it wasn't vague. It wasn't just like have compassion, which is a wonderful message, but it was like, this is how you work with the issues in your life. And this is how other people can work with the issues in theirs, um, sort of following this chakra pattern of, um, uh, of, of working with chakras. It's, and, and it's a, it's a long conversation. So, you know, I probably wouldn't get into the specifics of it now, but that's, that's what I learned. And that's what I used myself. And for many years, I kind of kept that very separate from my psychotherapy practice, unless somebody actually knew, um, you know, they saw my book somewhere, but I didn't talk about my book. I wrote two books about that experience. Mm -hmm. And one of them is called, the first one's called A Light in the Darkness. And that sort of is the first part of that book is autobiographical and like what led up to having that experience. And then the first messages I got 
And the second book is called Into the Fire, and that is a continuation of those messages. And I actually have more to write about that because I haven't included everything there. Um, so th that's really where it came from. But I kept those two worlds very, very separate for the most part. And it's only really now, and because it felt scary to me to put them together, you know, um, I, you know, and when people come to you for psychotherapy, that's what they're asking for. They didn't come and say, Hey, do you work with chakras? If somebody did say that, of course I, I would do that with them. And there were a few people that I did do some of that work with. that was great. Um, but for the most part, I kept them separate. And I think that there, I, you know, I think, and I think it's less common today, but I don't know how less common it is today. I really can't say. And maybe you being from a younger generation have a better handle on this. Um, for me, it was scary to kind of come out and say, I'm actually hearing a different level of consciousness that's speaking to me. And some people were like, whoa, I want to know about that. You know, people that I told, um, the few people that I told. And some people were really like, yeah, who do you think you are? And so, you know, that's what you're going to get. <laughs> so I think that kind of kept me um, a little bit, you know, probably hidden for quite a while. And then really interestingly enough, um, I'll just tell you kind of a short version, getting on these, on doing podcasts with people, you know, people started to look at my website and people like you wanted to know what that was about. And all of a sudden I couldn't keep those worlds separate. Because mm. um, many people have asked me about that part of my experience on these podcasts. And I think many people today are really interested in the connection, you know, um, you know, I grew up in a very intellectual family, so that was not part of my upbringing at all. And spirituality was not in my upbringing. So, um, so, so being on podcasts actually brought those two worlds together. And I'm, I want to tell you that I am so inspired because I know that now I'm going to write another book that does bring the two worlds together. And I'm really excited about writing that book. So, because what I'm, what I really believe at this point is that our mental health, like healing our wounds, you know, and again, nobody does this perfectly. We're, this is a journey we're on of healing, right? But healing our wounds, becoming more lovingly relational with one another, becoming more peaceful, becoming more committed to the quality of the whole rather than just what's good for me. Like what's good for our country, what's good for the world, what's good for humanity is really actually what is good for me. Um, um, that I think that moving into that consciousness is actually a doorway to spirit for a lot of people. And I've seen that with some of my clients who have made this incredible journey through their own healing of, of their childhood and then spontaneously had more of a spiritual connection. It wasn't even, any, I wasn't anything I said. It wasn't anything I did. It's just where it went. And I think that might be where the human race is going. I, I hope it is. Okay. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I think it definitely, I can understand how you would feel like, okay, this is something that I need to keep to myself. But then as time has gone, people are becoming more acceptable, like uh, open, I should say, um, right. society, 
uh, TikTok helps with that. Social media helps with that. People are, uh, you know, just more inquisitive. I know I, I hopefully it's okay for me to speak for Ariel in this, but I think me and her are also like, you know, just venturing out a little bit and kind of like, what is this? And, you know, talking to different people and like even in our own personal lives, like experiencing, you know, branching out and experiencing different things for ourselves. I know I've kind of like, let me go do this. And like Ariel kind of pushed pushed me in the last couple of years to like, go talk to this person and go, go do this thing done. And I'm like, okay, whatever. Okay. <laughs> and, and I've done it. And, you know, maybe 10 years ago, I would never have done it. Um, so uh, it's, it's interesting. And I don't think it is something that is as taboo as I thought it would have been. Right. Um, Me too. Yeah. So, um, and I want to keep pushing myself and keep, being open to new experiences and stuff. So yeah. I love that you are kind of, it sounds like having that same approach too. Yeah, I mean, and, and all of a sudden I'm not afraid to talk about, I really was afraid to talk about it. And I did get, you know, some people who were like, who do you think you are, you know? And of course you're gonna get that, you know, no matter what message you have, if it's a, if it's a little bit out of the mainstream, you know, I knew I knew to expect that. I didn't realize how strong of an impact it would have on me, but but I feel much less afraid to do that now and excited about doing it now. And I'm excited about writing this next book, which I think is going to be honestly think because of the messages that I've gotten. I think it's going to be unlike anything that's really out there. Not, you know, just because because I feel like the, the messages that I've gotten are have a certain perspective that not is not unlike other spiritual messages it's not that and i'm i'm not patting myself on the back here at all um i just feel like there's there's more that we could really understand about what we're doing here as human beings and that and i really feel from what i've learned that the time has come for our consciousness to change if we're going to survive I mean, honestly, that's really the the biggest motivation for me, and and that came through in early on when I was um, communicating with this divine source. Is that we're not going to make it if we don't change our consciousness. We're investing billions of dollars in the kind of a weaponry that could wipe out life on Earth. What are we doing? I mean, that in a psychological sense, that's homicidal and suicidal, and we know that that is mental illness. So for me, the thrust of my book is, it's our, it's our, it's our mental well-being that we really need to focus on if we're going to make it here. If our children and our grandchildren are going to inherit an earth that's habitable, that's humane, that welcomes them, that's safe. Um, and that's, that's the big picture. And I think that that comes spiritually and I think it comes psychologically. And I think... You know, many native cultures have predicted this kind of end time where we're, we really have to make a choice and why not help each other make a good choice? Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, <laughs> that's, that's where I'm coming from. But, you know, if, if it's interesting to you, I, 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 I thought of a story that actually sort of set me on that that's kind of like link psychology with spirit. If, if, if you want to hear a quick story. Sure. So when I was, you know, back in the 60s, I was part, I wasn't a hippie. I never did drugs and, and that kind of thing, but I was definitely part of that generation. And my friends were in that crowd. And a lot of people 
were attracted to Indian gurus and a lot of spiritual teachers coming to America at that time. And I had a friend who went to India to find a particular guru that he had heard about. And at that time, people, uh, contact lenses were made out of glass and he had glass contact lenses and on his way, he told me this story when he got back, on his way to find the guru, he was on a really dusty train and all this dust got under the lenses of his, uh, under his contact lenses and severely scraped his eyeballs. And he was in massive pain. And by the time he got to the guru, he was like just in, a, in excruciating pain. And his, and his question to the guru was, what do I do? And the guru said, I've never forgotten this because it actually changed my life hearing this story. The guru said, don't fight it, just be with it. Fighting it will make it worse. And I incorporated that as like a life lesson about pain. Like we have to learn how to be with it. And our culture is so acclimatized to numbing it out denying it, repressing it, saying, you know, buck up and get past it, um, take the high road, you know, what, anything not to feel it. And I think psychotherapy is a safe way. Good psychotherapy is a safe way to feel that pain and transform it. And that's what it's been for me. And that's what I see it being for other people. And just to make a really quick segue, and then please jump in. Um, so the first, I was in a lot of pain when this divine voice began speaking to me. I mean, I was at the lowest point of my journey of recovering from what happened to me as a child. And the, and the message was similar in different words, but it was the same message. The message was surrender, just surrender give your life to God and your soul and you, and then listen, surrender, and then listen for guidance. And I was blessed to be given a lot of guidance, but I think we all have that. I think we all have that connection. It might not look like mine, but because different people connect to their spirit or their essence or oneness or God, whatever they call it in their own way. But I think that's where psychotherapy is actually taking us to a deep connection to our own inner guidance, to our own essential self. So, and that's what I want to write about in specifics in, in the next book that I write. Love it. Love it, love it, love it, love it. I'm glad that you, because uh, I was going to ask you about the messaging. I was going to ask you two questions and I think you clarified it already. Um, was that did the messaging come and then did it stop or is it a continuous thing? But it sounds like it's been a continuous thing since it first appeared. It's a um, continuous thing. Yeah. Um, and then my other questioning was going to be, is it similar to how someone would say that they hear from God or the Holy Spirit? But it sounds like that's the same thing as well. Yeah. I mean, I think it comes in different forms for different people. Like, you know, I have several friends that hear very specific guidance. Does it come in exactly the same language with the same framework as mine? No, but it all comes from a place of love and acceptance and non-judgment. And like, what's the meaning and purpose of this? 
what is there to transform here, not what is there to judge and blame and point fingers at, whether at yourself or other people. What is it's it, it's always from a place of such deep, wise compassion, and I think I think that's the hallmark. I would say, and other people might say their experience is different, but I would say that's the hallmark of of the kind of consciousness that we're we're hoping to evolve toward that will save the human race and maybe allow us to be channels the vehicles for something much greater than we already are and we already have amazing potential true very true so what does hope mean to you the word hope yeah that's that's such a good question i think i think hope what hope means to me is that and and this is one of the things that i would say that i have found as a psychotherapist is really important to give people because when i started my journey i mean i was in a really dark place i did not feel like there was any hope for me to have a better life you know i'm i'm married to a wonderful man now is my second husband i never had the hope for that possibility um you know i never had hope to really feel better than i did when i, I thought i would just sort of have to struggle through till whatever um like cope you know um and so i feel like somehow having made the journey that i've made and i'm still on my journey for sure it's not i didn't reach some you know essence of perfection by any means but i know there's light at the end of the tunnel and i feel like that's what we need to hold for each other so when people come to me and they're in the same place of like you know i'm just not going to be the person who gets through this um i can't see light at the on the other side i hold that i i just tell them unequivocally that i know there is because i feel like we this is what we have to give each other and i know it for a fact i'm not making that up i know that light is possible i know that release from that level of pain is possible um and so we hold it for each other until we find it ourselves and you know I don't know that anybody actually held it that way for me. Um, but, you know, I had people that helped me along the way. But now I've just like, that's the message. I believe there's hope. I believe in the goodness of the human heart before it gets injured. I don't think there's a baby that comes into the world that's evil. I don't. And it's our conditioning that sets us up to either be of service to one another and kind or violent and hateful and we can do something about our conditioning that's not to say that people aren't born with different natures i think some people are born you know maybe more aggressive more quiet more thoughtful more artistic i think we're born with different natures but a violent person can learn to be safe and uh a more quiet, reserved, um, passive person can learn to be more assertive and we can find ourselves some middle. Mm -hmm. So what is the impact that you hope to leave on the world? Yeah, I, I, with this book, I want to leave the impact that there, that we can understand how we got here. 
not a mystery. It wasn't really a mystery how I ended up where I was. It's not a mystery why our country is escalating in violence and divisiveness and, you know, um, imbalances of resources. It's, it's not a mystery. Psychology really does hold answers. So I want to help educate in that level. And then, and, and basically the, out of that is, you know, you know, I want us to love each other. I want us to treat each other the way we want to be treated. You know, I mean, it's so simple. We all learned that, right? The Whatever the golden rule was, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. But we're not living it. There's not one of us that would want to be, have our children put in a cage because we were fleeing, you know, violence in another country. But we allow that. How did that happen? It's not a mystery. We could figure this out and we could do something about it. Mm -hmm. So that's the, I want people to be empowered to feel like no matter what their contribution is, large or small, that it matters, that we make it, that we all make a difference here with the love and safety and kindness and caring and sharing and cooperation and nonviolence that we have to offer. We love the message that you've shared today. Like I've learned so much in just this short time. Thank frame. you. Um, thank you so much. Thank you so much. Both of you, you're just a wonderful people and you're creating a wonderful show. And thank you for giving me the opportunity to share what matters to me. Yes, thank you, thank you, thank you. Um, where can our Corkies, our listeners go to find your wonderful books and just read more about you and follow you? Yeah, well, I'm on Facebook and I'm on LinkedIn and those are the two main places where I post anything. And then I have a website and it's www.phyllislevitt.com. And my two books are on Amazon, but you can also see them and read about them on my website. Then they're called Into the Fire. That well, that's the second one. The first one is A Light in the Darkness. The second one is Into the Fire. And on my homepage, there's a place you can just sign in um, if you want to stay in contact with me and find out when my third book is going to be published. If you just put your email address in there, then you're on my contact list. And I would love anyone to you know, or, or be in touch with me if you have questions, whatever, but <clears throat> that's where you can find me. And thank you for asking. For thank sure. you for giving me this great opportunity. Oh, no, thank you. We have learned so much. Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. I have to have you come back on again. Well, thank uh, you. Um, I would love to. Thank you so much. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. Talk soon. Okay. Bye. Bye. Bye, cookies. <laughs> we alongside BetterHelp want you to start living a healthier life today. Visit betterhelp.com slash MHU to join over the 1 million people who have taken control of their mental health. This code will allow 10% off your subscription. That's BetterHelp. H-E-L-P dot com slash M-H-U.
Hi, Corkies. Please, please, please follow us on all social media outlets. We're on Instagram at Mental Health Uncorked. We're on YouTube at Mental Health Uncorked. We're on Twitter at MHU The Podcast. And you can also email us at mentalhealthuncorked at gmail.com. Like, share, subscribe. Thank you.